Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, I am back from a very short vacation to London, Ontario, where I hung out with my best girls for a few days and got some much-needed socialization back into my life. Have you started to socialize with friends again, or are you still taking baby steps back to normalcy? That's the question we're asking over on the What She Said Talk Facebook page today. So hop on over right after today's show and let us know. This week, we're kicking things off with Nina Purewall, who would like you to let that go. Nina's greatest passion is to help others find happiness through adversity, and heaven knows we've been through enough of that. She leans into ancient wisdom, and in her best-selling book, she lays out exactly how to find Zen in the middle of chaos and live your best life freed from anxiety and stress. RBC's She's the Boss this week is profiling Jennifer McCready from Lady Luck Photography. Since 2011, Jennifer's mission has been to use her studio and her passion for photography to help every body, no matter what age, size, or shape, feel amazing about themselves. From pinup girls to boudoir to fantasy photo shoots, Jennifer shares how she makes all her clients feel like a million bucks. And Brody has movies galore this week, and surprisingly, her top pick this week is Pig, starring Nicolas Cage in the role of his life. She also has details on the emotional thriller Alice, the breathtaking Hidden Life of Trees documentary, and the absolutely can't-miss musical comedy series Schmigadoon on Apple Plus TV. COVID-19 has led to the largest mass disruption of education in modern human history. Ontario, in particular, has suffered the longest school closures in Canada and is amongst the highest in North America and Europe comparing regional averages. Dr. Prachi Sarvastava from the University of Western Ontario joins me to share what needs to happen to ensure our kids don't fall through the cracks. From the vilification of MSG and Indigenous chefs who are decolonizing their diets, to the battle to own hummus and the ways food is used as a love language, Unforked is a new show that aims to change the way listeners think about their next meal. Host Samira Moyadin joins me to share why food is much more than just a meal. Finally, the report card on how Canada is handling history lessons is in, and the number one spot may surprise you, as well as our grade. Mira Goldberg-Pock from Historica Canada joins me to share the details. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Do my head toss, check my nails, baby. How you feeling? Head toss, check my nails, baby. How you feeling? My next guest faced an unexpected childhood tragedy, which inspired her mindfulness and meditation journey over 20 years ago. After climbing the corporate ladder for nearly a decade, she took a sabbatical and moved to California to unplug and live in an ashram for a year. Nina Purewall's greatest passion to help others find happiness through adversity by leaning into ancient wisdom. 
With that, she founded Pure Minds, a social enterprise that conducts mindfulness and meditation workshops and is the co-author of the international bestseller, Let That Go. Welcome to What She Said, Nina. Thank you so much for having me, Candace. My producer may have to beep out that that word in the title. I'm not quite sure how that's going to go, but uh, but people get the point. And really, um, such an important topic right now as we start to come out of this pandemic, mental health is huge. Um, So what are you advising people who are integrating, reintegrating into life again? Any advice for that for people? Definitely. And I totally agree with you. People are saying that the next pandemic is going to be in mental health. Everybody is struggling right now. One in four people struggle with mental health disorders. Over 90% of the working world is stressed out. Um, So what do, what do I recommend? Well, the first thing I say when it comes to mindfulness is to really be aware, start to become more and more aware of the thoughts that we think, because we only think only, we think 60,000 thoughts a day. And we're only aware of less than 1% of them. So a lot of our stress, our anxiety happens subconsciously. So once we can become aware of our ruminating mind, our wandering mind, we can suddenly start to work through what's going on in there. Yeah, that's funny you say that because I, I think about that. Like when I wake up in the morning, my mind immediately turns on, I start thinking. And if I lie there too long, my stress level starts to rise. As soon as I get up, start moving, start doing things, it's, it's gone. Yes. Yeah. You can easily go down the rabbit hole, right? So it's important to, you know, get going, not let your mind, you know, wander into all these different places. I had a mentor of mine tell me that if you start stressing about something, once you get to that fifth or sixth thought about that thing, that's when you really start going down the rabbit hole. (laughs) And so if we can just catch our minds, we have a little technique in the book on how to do that. Just catch our minds and bring it back to the here and now or engage in something that we're passionate about. Um, it's, it's going to make a world of a difference. You'll be more aware of that wandering mind and you'll stop going down all these different, you know, dark pathways that the mind can take us on. Can we talk about what meditation is and is not for a minute? Because I, 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 I talk about meditation a lot on this show because I think it's very important, but I think people, A, will beat themselves up and say, oh, I can't do it. It's not possible. Or B, I need to be still for a long period yeah. of time. Can you maybe sort of elaborate on what it is and isn't? A hundred percent. I love talking about meditation myths because I've, I've been meditating for 16 years now and I come up against a lot of this, you know, as I, as I educate others. But the first thing I would say is don't expect your thoughts to stop. I think that's the biggest thing people come and say, I can't meditate because I can't stop my thoughts. Well, I have never had a meditation in 16 years where there's been no thoughts. It's our mind's job to think thoughts. We think 60,000 a day. So they're not going to magically disappear when we sit in meditation. So the first thing is the thoughts are going to come, let them come, let them go. Like you can envision, you know, like their clouds going by or their waves coming in and, you know, going back into the ocean, but, you know, just don't expect them to stop completely. Um, Another thing to consider is that meditation is personal. There's so many different ways to meditate. Um, You can meditate in silence. You can meditate by listening to nature sounds. You can meditate outside listening to natural nature. You can meditate to um, a guided meditation. There's so many different avenues. There's so many different apps, different teachers. So lean into what works for you um, is another thing that I say is really important. And I always say that meditation is like going to the gym for your mind. 
because it gives us time to sit with our minds, which when we're distracted in the real world, you know, cooking dinner, working, going for a walk, going to the gym, doing all these things, we're, we're kind of aware of what's going on in there, but not fully. And what meditation does is it makes you acutely aware of that one wandering mind. Um, so it might actually bring up stuff that you aren't expecting that may lay dormant. And that's okay because you can't let stuff go unless you bring stuff to surface. So sometimes meditation does that, but at the end of the day, it's really all about being in the moment, being in the here and now, taking in some deep breaths. And it's about going inwards and finding, you know, that, that inner peace that we all, that we all have access to. Now you say 60,000 thoughts a day and I immediately think about social media and I think the wandering mind is amplified so much. It's even, I mean, could it be possible that we wander even more with social media? It's a lot. And coming out of this pandemic, since we've been so tethered to technology, it's going to be hard for people to adjust. So how do people um, work with mindfulness when tech is involved, which is so mindless? Yes, that's a great question. I have to also add that of those 60,000 thoughts we think a day, studies show that 80% are negative or self-deprecating. So social media also doesn't help this. Um, a lot of us are on social media because, you know, maybe we love it and we find a little break, but coming out of the pandemic, we have to be able to be aware of when we're getting that tech hangover, you know, when we're scrolling and suddenly we're triggered by a post or suddenly we just don't feel good. Like it's been too long that we've been on, or we've been seeing too many posts of, you know, what society deems as the perfect body and it's making us feel guilty or it's making us feel bad. So we have to know, we have to set boundaries for ourselves and make ourselves aware of when tech is, we're using tech to feel good and engage with friends and be aware of maybe social justice issues and whatnot. And when it's just pulling us down and making us feel like crap and we have to be able to catch ourselves. So that's why with mindfulness, it works so well because you suddenly become aware of, you know what, even you might even feel it in your body. You might feel a little tummy ache. You might feel your heart pounding a little bit. Um, so, you know, the other thing to do with tech is to unfollow what is not serving you. If there are accounts that trigger you or people that trigger you, unfollow them or mute them. If it becomes like a little weird issue with a friend, mute them. Um, you know, and so, and also what I find really helpful is to take more regulated tech breaks. So don't look at your phone 30 minutes before bed and 30 minutes after you wake up. Um, you know, if you're heading up North for the weekend, sh shut off you know, or only check in after dinner and the whole day, just be tech free. So set more boundaries for yourself as you come out of the pandemic, you know, be aware of how tech is making you feel um, and know that what you're seeing is not always real. <laughs> There's a lot of filters out there. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, and we have to work on also expanding our attention span. I mean, I can, if I'm scrolling through TikTok and 10 second videos, I might watch you know, in a half an hour, hundreds of videos. Yes. And that's all in my head, yes. you know, being absorbed somewhere. I Who knows what it's doing to me? Yes, exactly. Actually, Jay Shetty says this, and I love it. He, he's also all about, you know, bringing ancient wisdom to the masses. But he says, you know, if you're looking at your phone right before bed and you're scrolling Instagram, that's kind of like allowing a hundred people to come into your room, give you their opinion, and then, you know, walk off. Like, would you actually do that in the real world? No, you know, so have more thoughts that are your own. And that's where going inwards and mindfulness and meditation is so important because you start owning more of yourself again. I think with social media, we get very pulled and distracted in, in a number of different ways. Absolutely. So you talk as well about 
you know, obviously the name of the book is, is let it go, let stuff go. It's easier said than done. Yes. So does this book, does your book, does it guide people through step-by-step or is it really a bunch of things and they could embrace one and maybe not another? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. And, you know, with letting go, I a hundred percent agree. It's a fun and sexy book title, but it is hard. It's hard to let things go because you cannot let anything go unless you bring it to surface and bringing things to surface coming from someone who's suppressed things for decades is a very difficult thing to do. Um, but once you bring it to surface, is when it stops laying dormant, when it stops subconsciously affecting you. So when you bring it to surface, you work through it, whether that takes a week, a month, a year, years, and then you can slowly start to let it go. And the way the book is set up is that it has, it's tip-based. So there's 120 tips on how to let things go, because as you said, not every thing is going to appeal to everyone. Um, so some chapters may be, you know, more uh, into how, your method of letting go, and some might not. We talk about, you know, forgiveness. We talk about self-love. We talk about acceptance and letting go, but you can't control shifting your perspective from micro to macro. Um, so there's just many different tips and avenues on how you can let things go. All right. I want people to be able to find the book. And I also want people to be able to find you uh, on social media where you share tips for helping people and probably telling them get off social media. So (laughs) where can they, where can they do all of that? Um, they can do that on my website is ninapirwal.com. So you can check it out and there's a, a, a tab for the book there and any country you're in, you'll be able to find where you can get the book. It's on Amazon pretty much in every country. Um, if you're in Canada, the book is available at Indigo in the U S uh, books a million or Barnes and Noble, um, and social media I'm on Instagram. So at nina.pure.minds is where you can find me. And yes, I do post a little bit about mindfulness. I'm actually posting a reel today about, you know, disconnecting from social media. So all kinds of different tips and tricks. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Nina, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Candace. Baby, how you feeling? More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Reach for the sky and hold your head up high for tonight and every night you're a superstar. Women are often their own worst critics when it comes to seeing themselves in a photo. We pick apart our weight, our height, our wrinkles, and so on, which in effect chips away at our own self-worth. Today in our latest for RBC She's the Boss, Jennifer McCready, the owner, founder, and photographer for Lady Luck Photography Studio is joining me. Since 2011, Jennifer's mission has been to use her studio and her passion for photography to help everybody, no matter what age, size, or shape, feel amazing about themselves. With a variety of options, including pinup, boudoir, glamour, and most recently, a special focus on mental health awareness, as well as her emphasis on self-love, self-acceptance, and self-confidence. Jennifer has helped hundreds of women and men feel like a superstar for the day and every day after. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Hi, thank you for having me. I have to, I, so I, I'm in love with your photographs. I'm just obsessed with them and it's not the typical photography. Um, so what made you decide to, to, you know, stray, I guess, veer away from the typical family photos 
and do, you know, pinups and boudoir. What, what prompted you to do that? Well, when I first started photography, I knew I wanted to be different than, um, you know, the typical wedding photographer, whatnot. And it's wonderful. The whole world of photography is wonderful, but I wanted to hit the heart. I wanted to hit my client's heart. I wanted them to have a way to make sure that they're feeling worthy about themselves. They feel enough. They feel confident. Um, I needed to find a way to be somewhere that people would feel comfortable to go to, to do this. And by providing hair and makeup and wardrobe and the whole package, it gives a person a chance to step out of reality and give them that ultimate self-care experience by spending the day with themselves and feeling amazing about themselves. And, and so it's truly a process sort of from beginning to end, seeing that end photo, uh, correct? Absolutely. It truly is from the day we con we connect and my client books a shoot, we sit down, we have a personal consultation where I will get to know my client and they'll get to know me. Um, and I believe that's a huge part in the process. And then the next is the photo shoot. And then after that, seeing your photos and then after that, seeing your photos online, if that's what you choose. Um, and, you know, seeing all the just it's just it's it's a huge process. That's why I call it the lady luck experience, because it's more than just a photo shoot. It's a big deal. Why do you think those particular photos, like a pinup photo or boudoir, why do you think that is so empowering to the people who take those? Well, the reason I started with mainly pinup photography, because I found in that point, I was really focused on women. I found that that was a way every woman looks good as a pinup girl, the 50s look, whether you want to look old Hollywood, whether you want to be a little bit more cheeky, whether you want to be more classic, every body, every woman looks great as a pinup girl. And that's why behind me, I have hundreds of pieces of wardrobe for when my clients come in in all sizes, all shapes, all kinds. It was such an awesome era and it's such a fun era. Um, and it's just, it's a lot of times when somebody comes in for their first, first photo shoot, I get them to do something that's really fun and cheeky just to get out of their comfort zone a little bit and to feel like they get let loose. <laughs> what are the reactions when women see these photos for the first time when they're finally done and they get to see them? Well, you know, I'd say 95% of the time, almost every single photo shoot, I'll turn the camera and show my client and I'll hear, is that me? And I just, I'm not going to lie. I probably tear up every time. Um, but I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's sometimes women, that's why I do what I do. Women just it's the world we're in right now. It's cell phones that are distorting what we really look like. Mostly positive. And then you get the times where, and that's why I do what I do. And then people end up shifting towards the end of it, loving themselves more. It's, it's a process. <laughs> how did you learn how to do that 50s look? Like how long did it take you to perfect that? I've seen a lot of your photos and it's I mean, they are spectacular. So how did you hone in on that skill? Because that must have taken some time. It did. And you know what? I can't take all the credit. I have a wonderful human. Her name is Deanna. Uh, she was already doing the pinup hairstyling. And her and I came together and said, let's do this. Let's rock this. And um, it just grew from there. So a lot of looking on the internet, a lot of looking at Gil Elfgren work, who's a classic uh, pinup artist. It just, I believe that when you find something that you're meant to do, it all just flows right in so easily and that's what happened with lady luck starting in 2011 
And it just kind of one thing after the other, after the other. Now I'm sitting in a studio full of pinup dresses, props everywhere. That's from the, they're all from the fifties. It's incredible. Do you only do in studio or do you ever travel to do uh, photographs as well? I absolutely travel. I like to take my clients' visions and make them come alive. So whether that's on a farm or if it's, you know, in a garage or whether they're wanting to do it in the, a bed and breakfast or a hotel, or maybe one day we might be going to Mexico and doing pictures there, you know, things like that. I like to, I like to take my clients' visions and make it come true. It's a once in a lifetime thing for some people. And I say, go big or go home. Amazing. I want people to be able to find you, Jennifer. Where can they do that? We, uh, you can find me anywhere. So Facebook under Lady Luck Photography Studio on uh, Instagram and on TikTok, um, pretty much all the platforms. And if you just Google Lady Luck Photography Studio, all the different pages come up. All right. Thank you to Jennifer McCready from Lady Luck Photography for joining me today. And thank you to our sponsor, RBC. RBC is here to support you through digital first solutions, advice and services that go beyond banking to help realize your true potential. Because owning a small business takes something special. That's why RBC is behind you every step of the way. Visit rbc.com backslash business. Not a clue what you're doing You can play brand new to all the other chicks out here But I know what you are What you are, babe Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Ann Brody. And Ann, we have loads to get to this week. So let's start with Pig. Your heart will break. This is Nick Cage's best moment in maybe decades. He plays uh, a former chef, renowned chef in, in Oregon, who goes to live in, in a cabin in the woods. He's had enough of society. And he becomes a truffle hunter. And he has a pig who helps him find them. Um, it, he leads a very isolated life. He has no, no facilities whatsoever in his cabin. And the bond between man and pig is, is just so beautiful. One night, someone breaks in, knocks him out and steals the pig. So he walks into um, Portland to find the pig. The guy who buys truffles from a rich kid whose father owns a chain of fabulous restaurants, comes with him. He eventually gets really involved with him, even though he was treating him poorly as a hermit in the woods. So they go through the underground world of Portland. It's just an incredible journey. Well, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but honestly, this is a must-see pig. This is this is actually the second movie I think you've brought this year about truffles. Um, but there's another pig film coming up called uh, The Truffle Hunters. All right. Wonderful. Okay. We've got a lot more to get to this week. So let's talk about Alice. Alice is the greatest film for a woman who has a certain viewpoint of men, uh, a husband and wife and their baby son, Jules, um, who's actually the son of the director live in Paris, uh, pretty ordinary life, pretty conventional. Um, she works in an accountancy shop and he's a big shot somewhere. Well, one day she goes to do uh, some grocery shopping and, and her credit card's denied. She tries three different times, deny, deny, deny. She goes to the bank and she's told to her horror that they have no money, that an inheritance she got of 77,000 euros is gone. They're, they are about to be evicted from their home. 
all of this a major shock. Turns out she tears her husband's office apart to find out what's going on. She finds his phone, calls a number. He's spent all this money over the past couple of years on escorts. I mean, just unbelievable. She's furious. She kicks him out. But she's got to pay this, this debt that she owes, uh, 7,000 euros a week. So she becomes a hooker. And she is the most pure as a driven snow kind of a gal. And, but it doesn't take her long to get into the headset. And she becomes really good. She becomes the leading escort at her service and makes a ton of money and therefore takes her power back. And uh, her friend, another hooker says to her, well, you know, love and sex is very good. Rape and sex is very bad. What we do is completely egalitarian. So it's <laughs> it's not really a promotion of, of hookerdom. It's more promotion of self-empowerment, whatever means you choose. It's incredibly moving. And of course, the guy comes back with his tail between his legs. Um, and that's a whole other drama. So where can where can we see that? Where can we catch On that one? TVOD. All right, excellent. So we only have a couple of minutes left, but I really want to talk about Schmigadoon. Oh, it's so much fun. You know the operetta Brigadoon and the Lucy and Desi spoof that, that they did on I Love Lucy. Well, it, it's it's a spoof, a satire on the uh, golden era of musicals from Hollywood. And um, uh, it's about a couple on a backpacking trip and they wander into this magical village called Schmigadoon. Every single character is some sort of musical stereotype. Everyone's in there. Martin Short's a bridge troll who lisps a lot. Alan Cumming is the mayor, and he's uh, hasn't discovered he's gay yet. Uh, just wonderful characters, wonderful rousing songs and dances, tongue firmly in cheek. It's a riot. It and it's will really like spirit. a Broadway extravaganza with all of these stars from Broadway in it. I mean, it just gotcha. looks it just looks fun and that's what we need more of. <laughs> yeah. You're it's just wonderful. All, all right. Last one. I was really drawn to the hidden life of trees. Oh, isn't that a great documentary? It looks incredible. Okay. Tree. We know some things about trees from previous documentaries in that they socialize, they look after each other. They send sugar to wounded trees, but we also learned things like they scream in pain when they're attacked by bugs or by people. Um, and then that sound sends off pheromones that uh, hurt the insects. Nothing you can do about people. And um, old tr trees can't get old unless they're surrounded by old trees. And you'll see this in neighborhoods. But we also are taken to this uh, wild mountaintop in Sweden to see the world's oldest tree, which is 10,000 years old, a scrubby old pine. And you see how it's adapted to the landscape. It's surrounded on the ground by, by a mini, mini forest absolutely incredible it just blew my mind and trees actually communicate over hundreds of kilometers to coordinate when they're going to bloom so that all their chemical things that they have to accomplish are done together just it, astounding and it's really such an important film with the climate change becoming uh, more and more a part of our lives uh, this oh. is a really important film so uh, I, ho I hope people can, uh, watch that and where can they catch it that is on TVOD. Okay. So people can catch this and all of your reviews of everything else coming out this week on whatshesaidtalk.com. And you're going to be back next week with more.
That's right. Have a good one. Thanks, Ann. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. And I'm feeling good. has led to the largest mass disruption of education in modern human history. Ontario in particular has suffered the longest school closures in Canada and is amongst the highest in North America and Europe comparing regional averages. Long-term education disruption has many negative effects for children and young people, households, and society. Dr. Prachi Sarvastav is a tenured associate professor at Western University, specializing in education and global development. She is currently working on the global education emergency caused by COVID-19 and has led high-level policy briefs on education policy and planning, and joins me now to discuss where we go from here. Welcome to the show, Prachi. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, I think this is news to no parent out there that the impact of this has been huge, but I think we need to look at this now at a a macro level. How is this affecting the country as a whole in terms of education? Right. So we've suffered, as you said in the introduction, um, in Ontario in particular, the longest school closures in Canada. Um, And as a result, what we are seeing is a lot of inequitable um, effects that we're going to see that we're seeing right now in the short term, but that will play out in the in the longer term. Um, We have to remember one thing in Ontario, we have 2.1 million students across the country, we have roughly 5.5 million students. So this is a substantial proportion of the population that has been affected in terms of their normal uh, life trajectories. And I want to be very clear about the fact that the losses that we are seeing are real, they are measurable, and they are being witnessed both by teachers and educators, but also we're now seeing um, increases in child health and well-being uh, indicators that really show effects, negative effects on mental health, negative effects on social skills development, socialization, suicidal ideation, all of these are also now coming into our um, health, into our health system as well. So these are real um, issues. Uh, We talk often about children's resilience, which is accurate. Children are very resilient, but they're resilient up to a point. Um, This has impeded development this has impeded their life opportunities. And from a macro perspective, when you accumulate this level of disruption, when you actually think about the kinds of interruptions that children and young people have faced over their lifetimes, this will result in learning in, in learning loss, this which will which will accumulate. This will result in their own income and, and earning loss. And societally, This will um, lead to negative macroeconomic effects, negative potential equity effects, negative potential social mobility effects. And 
they will have the worst consequences on the groups and children that are most disadvantaged. Yeah, if there was ever a case study for the importance and value of public education, COVID was really it. Yes, I, I, I would think that's, that's accurate. So, but there's going to be people on the other side of this who are going to argue now and say, well, look at how much money we saved, uh, you know, in this and this and this with school closures and all this, you know, that there's somebody's going to latch onto that. So the argument needs to be, obviously, you just need to go further beyond the schools and some of the impact that's going to have, right? So we're going to see uh, underqualified education workforce. Uh, what are we looking at in terms of what happens after as, as opposed to the negative effects of this? Well, I haven't seen a case in terms, I haven't seen any economic modeling that shows um, that we've saved money. I've seen a lot of economic economic modeling that shows that we are uh, losing money and will continue to lose money, substantial amounts of money, both in terms of GDP and in terms of, uh, in terms of earnings of, of this generation of children. And, and I, can cite some, I can cite some of those studies. There's a very um, well-known now uh, economic uh, study that came out to model um, the income loss and the GDP loss associated with school closures. And this was uh, really based on 14 weeks of school closures. In Ontario, we've suffered close to 27 weeks. So remember, we're looking at almost double the time that the modeling study had shown. And what that study showed was that globally, we're looking at around $15 trillion, $15 trillion of lifetime um, income loss for this generation of students. In Canada, we're looking at, we could look uh, to see roughly $1.6 trillion of GDP loss over this lifetime if we don't uh, really properly remediate the losses. Um, Stats Canada also came out with a study to show that the cohort of 2021 high school, college, and university graduates could uh, see up to $40,000 of income loss over the next five years. So when we're talking about smart investments and moral investments, I mean, I, I don't, I can't make, a, there's no case to be made that this is a, a cost-saving strategy. Because honestly, in Ontario, it was modeled that $3 billion is roughly what we would need to implement. This was last year now. Um, it would take that much uh, money, about $3 billion to implement uh, practices like having reduced class sizes and introducing ventilation measures and a, and, a, and a host of other measures that were not introduced that we're still talking about, by the way, for September 2021. And I think if you think about three billion versus a GDP loss of trillions of dollars, there's really no case to be made on the other end. Yeah, that billions is now small potatoes compared to what it's really going to cost us down the road. And to be fair, it was small potatoes to start with. I mean, we had right. roughly $1.7 billion that was invested from federal government plus uh, small amounts of money come from, coming from the province. So you really just needed another $1.3 billion. That's not, for, for, for a province the size of Ontario um, and, and, and our budgets, that's not big fry. And I think people really do need to understand that accumulation over time, we're looking at trillions and trillions of dollars of loss, which is much, much harder to recoup the longer you, you let this go. So you lay out a three-point plan then for education recovery. And does that include uh, you know, scooping up these kids 
who have who have been lost, you know, over the last year, who have lost, you know, uh, uh, credits, have lost time in school, uh, mental health. Does is that included in your three point recovery plan? So I have been working on emergency education. Uh, I started my career more than 20 years ago in, in conflict affected zones. And one of the first uh, jobs I did was to actually implement uh, a program, uh, an accelerated learning program uh, in, in, uh, for, for refugees and for internally displaced persons during the Kosovar conflict. And as a result, I've been you know, keeping up with the literature and so emergency education literature, it's emergency education is, is a field, is, is a proper field with proper um, expertise. And there are two things to be said about that. I think the first thing is we have approached this in Canada with the idea that we simply don't know what to do because we've been caught off guard by the pandemic and no one saw the pandemic coming and so we've never had to deal with crisis and we don't really know what to do and what should we do and you know so we're just kind of muddling through and i think that kind of discourse is dangerous discourse those are dangerous ideas because what that does is is it legitimizes inaction it legitimizes actually not seeking uh, the proper expertise. There's a whole world of uh, experts. There's a whole there's a whole range of countries that actually have to implement emergency education measures as a matter of course because their contexts are so very different. So I think the first thing we need to recognize is that the kinds of plans that I am suggesting are really based in good practice, in evidence, and in and in literature, and in global and in global practices. And the second point is. Okay, so what do we actually do? So these are measures that are implement that we can implement that are readily, uh, you know, available to us if we think about it from a concerted macro level. The first thing would be to look at the curriculum and do broad correct curriculum reform or readjustment for the whole sector, going from JK all the way to grade twelve. What you would do in that case is to see what parts of the curriculum need to be lengthened for this year, what parts of the curriculum need to be brought into the next year, and what parts of the curriculum from last year need to be brought in to this year, right? Because we know that there has been a certain proportion of the curriculum that was not able to be covered given all of the, uh, given all of the disruption. So that you would do across the board. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. I think you've just sort of, you know, muddled my brain because I'm thinking about where this all goes from here. So I'm sure many people will be thinking the same thing. I really would like to have you back in the fall. So let's make that a thing because <laughs> sure. I would like to see where we're going to end up in the fall uh, and how far we're off from what's being recommended and what's actually happening. I'm happy to come back if you find that useful, Candace. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. For the past 16 years, Samira Moyden has run a restaurant with her siblings in Toronto's Queen West neighborhood called Banu. She's been a journalist for just as long and is a producer with CBC Radio's The Current. Samira thinks about food 
all the time. And so it's fitting that she is now the host of a new CBC radio show called Unforked that explores the culture and politics behind the food we eat. Welcome to the show, Samira. Thanks very much for having me. Hi. Uh, So this is not a cooking show. It's not a recipe show, right? It's about our relationship with food. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a food show that sort of uses food as a lens to look at the culture and politics behind or baked into the foods that we eat. So can you give me an example of that then? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, uh, today we just aired our second episode and it's all about hummus and gastro-nationalism. And so, you know, you have hummus, which is just tahini, chickpea, lemon, olive oil. But then at the same time, you know, that very simple dish gets tied into sort of state projects. So in 2006, Israel decided that hummus is going to be our national dish. And so when they did that, you know, Lebanon decided, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to do that because Lebanon was claiming it as their own. So Lebanon tried to take Israel to the uh, court in EU to sort of not allow Israel to, you know, make this part of their national national dish. And so what we did on the show was we talked to a sociologist in Tel Aviv, um, and she actually looks at hummus and the, and, and the role that it's played in the uh, project of sort of state building in Israel. And at the same time, she's in conversation with a Palestinian cookbook author and social activist named Leila Haddad, who's saying, hey, we're over here behind the wall, you know, hummus is ours, but you won't know about it because, you know, we're not allowed to go into Tel Aviv to eat it in these restaurants and all this stuff. So we just sort of show how complicated this very simple dish actually is. That is incredible, actually, thinking about it. I would never have thought, but I'm never going to be able to look at it the same way again. <laughs> uh, so then what about within our own country? Do you look at, say, differences between, you know, indigenous cultures who would eat things like whale, which may cause somebody who's, you know, strictly vegan to lose their mind? Yeah, I mean, uh, our first episode uh, was uh, talking to indigenous chefs and activists across Canada, uh, all about decolonizing their diets and what they're doing um, to push back on the policing of indigenous food. So we look at the sort of history of colonization and how the policing of indigenous foods was part of Canada's colonial project. So we start in Squamish, BC, um, and then there we speak to Lee Joseph, who's an indigenous ethnobotanist, and she's been taking out elders back onto the land and reintroducing them to these traditional things, right? Like uh, Saskatoon berries, well, not up in BC, but the specific items that are part of that terroir. And so she's sort of reintroducing these items. And she says, you know, our ancestors weren't allowed to eat these things. They were actually told it's bad for them. And then we go 4,000 kilometers east and we talk to Rich Francis, who's an indigenous chef in Six Nations, the Grand River on Southwestern Ontario. And he throws these amazing dinners on reserve. And the reason he does it on reserve is because the items that he is making are actually illegal. So you're not gonna find any of those items in restaurants in Canada, Um, like beluga whale, like you brought up whale. So beluga whale, um, moose, for instance. I didn't know this, but the only place that you can eat moose in Canada is in Newfoundland. I did not know that either. Yeah, it's the only place where it's legal um, to serve. 
So we sort of, yeah, so we look at sort of from province to province, how food is still being, being policed, and then how it's being still used against Indigenous people to control the community and stuff. Because as Rich Francis says, if you control the food, you control the people. And so it's not just the politics, though. Food has a very emotional connection for us as well, right? Totally. We're very, we're even if you would say, you know, I consider myself maybe a foodie, but somebody would say they're not. It's still an emotional connection, no yeah. matter what. So do you dive into that, the why behind that? Absolutely. We have a couple episodes on food as a love language. You know, how we sort of show our love for one another through food and cooking for one another. But then we also look at how food can be a traumatic thing for a lot of people and emotional and certain foods can trigger certain memories in all of us. And so we look at, you know, the, the glorious side of food, which is something that we all relish and enjoy, but we also look at how that can be a part of one's trauma and tied to memory. And so it, it really, the thing about food that we've noticed while working on this show is how people really build their identities on it about what they do eat and what they don't eat and sort of the morality that people tie into that too, right? You touched on veganism a little bit. And so there's this moral compass when it comes to food. Like we have a whole episode on beef and we show about, talk about how this one item, beef, is so complicated, right? Especially when you go to a place like India where you have a president, Narendra Modi, who's tried to ban the consumption of beef as part of his sort of Hindu nationalist project. So, and then we go to Alberta, right? Where beef is like, it's cattle country, right? It's part of the culture there. And so if, and if you don't participate in that culture, you're seen as being an other, you know? So we talk about all of these things. And at the same time that it sounds a little bit complicated and everything else, there's always hope. And, you know, um, there's, we always try to end the show on a high. You know, because at the end of the day, food is something we all love. Absolutely. Really. Yeah. So this is really, uh, it's about food, but it's sort of a mirror on, on, on humanity, really. So it sounds wonderful. I want to listen to it. I want my listeners to be able to find it. So please tell us where we can find the podcast and where people can follow along with you. So if you want to listen live, it's on CBC Radio 1. Uh, Mondays, uh, right after the current at 9.30 a.m. And then it repeats on Saturdays at 11 a.m. right after day six. Um, and, and those are all Eastern Standard Times. But if you want to download it, it's on uh, Google Play, uh, Spotify, and of course on the CBC Listen app. Okay, wonderful. So Unforked is what everybody's looking for. And uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Mr. Millionaire. Have a story for what she said? Email us at 1059theregion.com. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region. envisions Canadian history curricula that includes a balanced intersection of traditional political history, people's lived experiences, and a deep understanding of indigeneity and land in the past and present. Mira Goldberg-Posh is the manager of programs and education at Historica Canada. 
She has a MA in medieval history from the University of Ottawa, but soon found out that what she really enjoys is making history accessible to the general public. Over the past few years, history education has become increasingly important to her, and she focuses on bringing diverse and underrepresented stories to the forefront. She joins me now to discuss the Canadian History Report Card. Welcome to the show, Mira. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a report card, so let's start with the big one. Are we failing? <laughs> well, nobody got a failing grade but we are, we are lower as a country than we had hoped to see. Um, some provinces are obviously doing better than others, um, but there's, there is definitely room for improvement in, uh, in history education in Canada. So are we talking about um, critical race theory then? Are we talking about uh, including that into our history curriculum? So we didn't specifically examine, you know, the, the U.S. concept of critical race theory, but we did look at how curricula, uh, interweave, uh, diverse perspectives, uh, lived experiences, which includes kind of social history and the broader, the broader things that are not included in what we know as a quote unquote traditional Canadian history narrative. So that's like the military, political and economic history that you learned probably in school. I know I learned it in school when I was, when I was uh, studying as a, as a youngster. Um, fortunately, most history programs have started to include that in some capacity um, to broaden their horizons, to include those perspectives and experiences and kind of the broader the broader outlook on what history should include and teach. But um, some of them have added it in an additive way um, so that it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't interweave well and it's kind of othered still. And some of them, some are still struggling to add those voices and perspectives in, and um, some have done a great job and are moving forward. <laughs> well, we would we would be remiss if we didn't discuss the fact that we're with, with what's going on in the Indigenous community and across Canada right now. That's a big one. Um, yes. Did you look at that uh, at that perspective when you were looking at this overall? Yes, absolutely. So one of the we do this about every five or six years, the report cards um, and. The last time we released this report, uh, the TRC had not yet released their calls to action. So one of our biggest uh, additions this year was looking at how provinces and territories have um, have have added in the the calls to action, specifically calls to action sixty two to sixty five, which are specifically for um, education and um, a large part of of how how we analyzed. Um, the the provinces and territories um the curricula were had they added them in had they added them into all the courses um are they kind of interwoven well have they been added on top of as kind of like a, a cursory shout out or have they been really deeply kind of woven into the pedagogy and um and introduced to children as a, a central tenet of canadian history i'm, I'm going to ask the question who is doing the best Who's the best? It's Ontario, which uh, has been on top uh, last time as well. Um, so they did a curriculum renewal in, I believe, in 2015, and then again in 2018, like to incorporate specifically to incorporate the TRC's calls to action. Um, so they came out on top, um, and uh, I have to say the curriculum looks really good now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to just touch briefly then, because I think people think, ah, oh, history, like, you know, 
but our history impacts our future impacts. And, and I think it's a perfect example right now of what's happening with where the residential schools and these mass graves. I had never, I did not know about residential schools until I was almost in my forties. Yeah. I, I didn't learn about them until university. And I was, I was shocked. Um, and didn't until later start to grasp the full, the full picture of what that actually meant when I was younger. I was like, oh, they were, you know, they're boarding schools. They sound kind of bad, but, and as more and more has emerged, the the full scope of how horrifying this, this subjugation and this colonial just destruction um, on indigenous cultures was through the vehicle of residential schools has become so important to understanding uh, how Canada is today and how our entire society uh, kind of is built. And that that is super interesting to me. Uh, also, obviously horrifying. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, as, as you mentioned, I have a, an MA in medieval history. And when I was younger, Canadian history didn't interest me at all because I just didn't see, I was not taught to make connections between what I was learning and the world around me. And I think that's something that is becoming more uh, prominent in um, in history education and uh, something that we actually looked at this in this report, which was uh, providing opportunity for local and community histories and for students to see themselves reflected or to see you know their their communities reflected in history, um, which kind of bridges this gap and makes it more interesting. Um, and one of the things that I like most about Canadian history now, which I will be perfectly honest, did not interest me as a teenager at all, um, is that everything I'm looking at now, I can see reflected around me. It has an actual impact. And that that's one of the, the key things um, that I think the residential schools with the discoveries um, and kind of it coming again to the forefront now, I think people are kind of realizing and I hope people are realizing how important it is to understand what that is and how it affects us today. And history yeah. is is the best way to do that. History. If we don't understand, if we don't understand where we came from, we won't know where we're going to. Exactly. I really want people to be able to connect with you and find out more. So, where are the best places for that? All right. Well, you can uh, visit our website at historicacanada.ca. Um, and you can find everything there, including an email address to uh, to reach out to us, as well as the report cards themselves, um, which are available to read in full uh, on our website. All right. And any social channels? Uh, yes, uh, we have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. They're all at Historica Canada or at Historica.Canada, I believe, in Facebook. Um, we'd love to see you there. And uh, feel free to reach out. I'd uh, love to hear from you. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mira. Thanks so much for having me on the show. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.